If you have your Bibles, turn to the Gospel of John, chapter 1. Our scripture reading is John 1, 29 through 51. And I want to make a comment before I read on the John the Baptist that immediately precede uh, this episode that we read about here. You know, every culture has some tasks that are stomach-turning, disgusting, dirty jobs. We had the, there was, I forget the the name of the guy who did the television show Dirty Jobs, but it was rather fascinating to go around and and see those in our culture. Well, in the first century, you know, everyone wore sandals all day. And it was a very hot and dusty climate in Palestine. And so at night when you took your sandals off, it, it was, it was foul. It was, it was disgusting. And they considered it unbelievably degrading to have uh, someone else take off your sandals for you. So in fact, the Jews made up rules. Uh, if you were um, a servant of a Jewish man and you, you yourself were a Jew, then you were forbidden to uh, take off this, the, the, the sandals of your master. Um, that would be considered too degrading for a fellow countryman. Now, if you were a Gentile servant, tough luck. You, know, you had to do it. Um, and likewise, rabbis in their day, I mean, a rabbi could tell a disciple to do just about anything. But as you might guess, the one thing that you could not tell your disciples to do was to untie your sandals at night. So that's the context for John the Baptist's words that appear right immediately before verse 29 where John the Baptist, we might expect him to say, uh, of Jesus, I am uh, willing to untie his sandals. And if he had said something like that, it would speak to the greatness of Jesus and the true humility of John the Baptist. But as you, you, you may know, that's not what he says. His words are, I am unworthy to untie his sandals, which if you could just imagine the crowds that are hearing this, uh, it, he's trying to blow their categories. This is, this is something, this is someone we've never heard uh, anything like it before. And he says that, and then we read in verse 29. It just gets even more lofty. The next day, John saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And again, imagine you're in the crowd and, I mean, what that would sound like to to Jewish ears. He continues, This is the one I meant when I said, A man who comes after me has surpassed me because he was before me. I, I myself did not know him, but the reason I came baptizing with water was that he might be revealed to Israel. Then John gave this testimony. I saw the Spirit come down from heaven as a dove and remain on him. I would not have known him except that the one who sent me to baptize with water told me, the man on whom you see the Spirit come down and remain is he who will baptize with the Holy Spirit. I have seen and I testify that this is the Son of God. Now one quick comment. Verses 32 through 34 are obviously a reference to what? To Jesus' baptism He's being baptized in the River Jordan. But you notice that in John's account, that event, the actual baptism, the baptism itself, is omitted. Now, why would he do that? What can account for that? Well, the only thing I can come up with is John, he assumes that his readers would already know about it. 
would have already read it. In other words, his readers have already read and been exposed to one of the other gospel accounts, Matthew, Mark, or Luke. And so he is presupposing they have that information. And one of the great questions on why John's gospel is so different than all the other, we call them the synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, uh, I think this is part of the reason. Because he's intentionally springboarding off of those three gospels to tell us things that aren't there yet primarily, that are new. And so, yeah, 32 through 34 presupposes that knowledge. 35, the next day John was there again with two of his disciples. When he, when he saw Jesus passing by, he said, behold the Lamb of God. When the two disciples heard him say this, they followed Jesus. And turning around, Jesus saw them following and asked, what do you want? What do you want? And they said, rabbi, which means teacher, Where are you staying? Come, he replied, and you will see. So they went and they saw where he was staying and spent the day with him. It was about the 10th hour or about four o'clock in the afternoon. Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, again, notice where does this Simon Peter character come from? He's presupposed. We assume that they already know something about Peter. Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, was one of the two who heard what John had said and who had followed Jesus. The first thing that Andrew did was to find his brother Simon and tell him, we have found the Messiah, that is the Christ. And he brought Simon to Jesus. Jesus looked at Simon and said, you are Simon, son of John. You will be called Cephas. That's the Aramaic for rock which when translated is in the Greek, Peter, which means rock. Well, the next day, Jesus decided to leave for Galilee. Finding Philip, he said to him, follow me. Philip, like Andrew and Peter, was from the town of Bethsaida. Philip found Nathanael and told him, we have found the one Moses wrote about in the law and about whom the prophets also wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph, And Nathaniel replies, Nazareth, can anything good come from there? Another comment. So what we'll read in the next chapter is that Nathaniel, he hails from, I think he's from the town of Cana, which is in the region of Galilee, which is the same region that Nazareth is located in. So he's a fellow Galilean. When you hear those words, can anything good come from Nazareth? And it's coming from the lips of a fellow Galilean. I mean, doesn't that just tell you that Nazareth was such a dump? <laughs> I mean, it was such a backwaters town. It was, it was the place where, you know, you wouldn't want to go. It's, they're all intermarried there. It, you know, it's dueling banjos territory, that kind of thing. Nothing good can come from a place like that. I mean, that's what they thought when they heard that he was Jesus of Nazareth. And then, okay, what verse am I in? I've lost my place. What am I in? 46. Okay, thank you. (laughs) Nazareth, can anything good come from there? Nathaniel asked. And Philip said, come and see. Like there's evangelism right there. That's the kind of evangelism we invite people into. Just, all right, well, you can have your biases. Just come and see. Come and see. When Jesus saw Nathanael approaching, he said of him, here is a true Israelite in whom uh, there is, some translations say, in whom there is no deceit or in whom there is no guile. 
And uh, Nathanael asked, well, how do you know me? And Jesus answered, I saw you while you were under the fig tree before Philip called you. That's all he says. And then notice Nathanael's response. Then Nathanael declared, Rabbi, you are the son of God. You are the king of Israel. Now, Jesus said something that was relatively innocuous, right? I saw you under the fig tree. Nathanael responds with this huge affirmation of faith. What can account for that? Here's one theory. So in the Bible, fig trees almost universally represent what? They represent Israel. And, he, and, and then in the first century, fig trees also represented a place where Israelites commonly went to pray, curiously enough. But, I mean, maybe just under the, sh- the shade of a fig tree. Um, is, speculation right here, but is Nathaniel there praying you know, under the, the arms of Israel, so to speak, as a true Israelite? And if he is a true Israelite, as Jesus says, what is he praying for? I mean, could he have been praying for, for the promised one, the Messiah, to come? And then when he hears about Jesus and Jesus says, I saw you, I knew you were praying for this. Um, I don't know, but it's a possibility. Well, yeah, and verse 49, we're at 50. And then Jesus said to him, you believe because I told you I saw you under the fig tree. You shall see greater things than that. And he then added, I tell you the truth. You shall see heaven open and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. Mm. Well, this is God's word. Thanks be to God. <clears throat> when I got home from church last Sunday, you know, you always, you always kind of, as a pastor, preacher, you do, you do an autopsy on the sermon, and you do it with your family, which is really not fair to them. To, <laughs> but, but I asked them the question, so I said, was the sermon a little, was it hard to follow? And their, their response to me on last week's sermon was, a little bit, which for them means yes. <laughs> They're very kind in the way they put it. But yes, it was hard to follow. With that in mind, I'm going to make this one really simple. And so it's a two-point sermon. I can't mess that up. Jesus as the Lamb, and we've already heard so much of that theme already in the service. Jesus as the Lamb, and Jesus as the ladder. Um, that's what we're going to look at. Let's go back earlier to the reading from the Jesus Storybook Bible. I hope that that hasn't um, offended anyone. It's not a Bible. I know that. It's a commentary on the Bible. It's an interpretation of the Bible for younger ears. And um, I hope it hasn't offended anyone that we're not reading it as though it was Scripture, because it, it most certainly is not. But it does a great job of putting the cookies on the lower shelf, I think. And, and then hearing a child's voice, thank you, Michaela, for reading so well, hearing their voice, it, it really brings it to light. And so if you're listening to the podcast, we read from the episode in the Jesus Storybook Bible of Abraham's offering of his son Isaac as a sacrifice Now, you may be aware that is one of the greatest narratives. It is considered one of the greatest narratives in all of ancient literature. There there is not one, not two, but three of the world's religions place that narrative at the center of their faith. 
That narrative is hugely significant for Christianity, for Judaism, and for Islam. And so, yes, it's one of the most famous narratives of ancient literature, most important uh, narratives, and, I mean, one of the most, honestly, deeply troubling (laughs) narratives because it's disturbing, isn't it? The Danish philosopher Søren Kierkegaard wrote a book that was somewhat based upon that episode. It's entitled, some of you may have read it, Fear and Trembling. And in it, Kierkegaard imagines a preacher like myself standing up in front of his church on a Sunday, Sunday morning in his sermon and communicating the message that you must obey God no matter how outrageous the command that he gives you. You must obey God no matter what he tells you to do. All right, so a parishioner in his church goes home Sunday afternoon, kills his son. And um, they come back to church next Sunday. Same preacher stands up and rails like, what kind of a monster of a father could possibly have done that? And Kierkegaard's existential question is, is uh, why is the one father condemned while Abraham is commended? Why is the one father condemned? Abraham is commended. Because on a, on a strictly ethical level, like that story doesn't work, does it? I'm trying to sacrifice your own son is evil. It's, it's bad. Um, and we read in the, the Genesis 22 is where it's found that God wanted to test Abraham to see what was inside of him. And some people say that Abraham, he failed the test. In, in failing to disobey God, in failing to argue back with God and say, no, I'm not going to do that. They, like modern commentators would say, well, Abraham failed the test, interestingly. Well, in Islam, they have a different take. In Islam, according to the Quran, the devil attempts to tempt Abraham on three different occasions not to go through with the sacrifice. And this is commemorated, you may know about this, in the annual pilgrimage to Mecca, the, the Hajj, what um, a Muslim pilgrim will do is they will take a bun- bunch of um, uh, pea-shaped pebbles and they will walk up these long ramps and stand before these 50-foot columns. That There are three of them, you know, 50 foot high, and they will take the pebbles and they will throw it at the feet of the columns as a way of, of stoning the devil and his three attempts to get Abraham to disobey God. And they, of course, believe that the sacrifice took place in Mecca and not in Jerusalem. And they believe that the sacrifice was the son, uh, which son? Ishmael and not uh, Isaac. But the point of the story for a Muslim is this, that you must submit to God. Uh, and Abraham is the model um, Muslim because He submits to God's will. No matter how extreme or how barbaric the command, he surrenders his will to do the will of God. It's a story of submission. Judaism, it takes it in in kind of a a totally different direction. Judaism, can you guess who is the hero of that story? It's Isaac. And so the story, um, if you read through Genesis and you try to calculate the age of Isaac, Hard to pinpoint his age. He, he's probably anywhere from 8 to 35. And Christian commentators have, for their different reasons, tended to uh, put Isaac on the younger end of the spectrum. Like, he's an 8-year-old, right? He's a 9-year-old. But Jewish interpreters, just the opposite. 
They've always put him in his late 20s and early 30s, recognizing that the older Isaac is, the greater hero he is in the story, right? Because Abraham is, we can calculate his age, Abraham was 125. (laughs) If If Isaac wasn't a willing victim, then the whole thing is not going to happen. In fact, in one Jewish account, Isaac actually stands up and he gives a short speech to Abraham. He says, Father Abraham, I I raise no objection to the carrying out of your words, and I willingly let myself be bound on top of the altar and stretch out my neck under the knife. And so, yeah, when you look in Judaism, at least in rabbinical Judaism, the, the account is always referred to as the binding of Isaac. Because, yeah, Genesis 22, Isaac is the, is the hero. You know why neither of those two interpretations are correct? Because at the end of the story, Moses names the place where the episode uh, occurred. And when Moses gives a name to it, you know, names are, are meant to encapsulate kind of an, an entire moment. When he gives a name to it, he does not call it Uh, The place where Abraham submits. Nope. He doesn't call it the place where Isaac willingly lays down his life. Nope. He calls it what? He calls it the mount on which the Lord provides. And what does he provide? He provides the lamb. The the question that Isaac asked to his father. Father, where, where is the lamb for the sacrifice? And Abraham says, God will provide for himself the lamb. Now, all of that background, you know, leads us into John the Baptist's words here. When he says, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, he, he might be referring to the Passover lamb, right? The, the, the lamb in the story of Exodus, the blood of which on the doors posts of the, of the home turns away the wrath of the destroying able, angel. It might be the Passover lamb. I think it's most likely the Isaac lamb. Because Jesus Christ, I mean, it's so cool. Jesus Christ is both. He's both Isaac and the lamb that's caught, the ram lamb that's caught in the thicket. At least in five ways. Number one, Isaac was, and these kind of come out, you, you hear it at the end of the Jesus Storybook Bible episode, but Isaac was the beloved son of his father the promised son through whom God would build the family and save the world. Jesus is the beloved son of his father, the promised son, the, the, the only begotten son, the one through whom God would save, would build a family, us, and save the world. Number two, how was Isaac born? Isaac was born to a very old, very barren woman when everyone said it couldn't possibly happen. Sarah Her womb was dead. Jesus was born to a very young, a a never knew a man, virgin, when everybody said, and people still say, it couldn't happen. It's impossible. Her womb was dead, and and so far it was unused. Number three, Isaac, he carried the wood on his back. He carried that wood up the hill. Jesus carried the wood on his back, at least as far as he could carry it. A wooden beam strapped across his back that he, number five, would be bound to. Isaac was bound to the altar. Jesus was nailed 
to the altar, the altar of the cross. And then I guess maybe number six, Isaac was miraculously saved at the very last moment, just as Jesus was miraculously resurrected when it seemed like all hope was lost. And so we'll see in just a minute. What child is this who laid to rest on Mary's lap is sleeping, whom angels greet with anthems sweet while shepherds watch are keeping? This, this is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And you know, that is amazing. I mean, what God is doing in his son Jesus, it, he, look, we think our biggest problems are, I may fail my test next week. I may, I may not get into the grad school I want to. I may not get the promotion. I may not get hired by Google. I have been hired by Google. I may be fired by Google. I mean, we, those are, we think those are our biggest problems. Those aren't. Our God is in, in setting forth his only begotten son as the lamb to take away our sins. He is meeting our deepest need. He is meeting your deepest need, your greatest need even if you don't recognize it as such. Yeah, there are more parallels, but um, I want to move on to the second point. Jesus is lamb. We got that clear. (laughs) Jesus as ladder. In verse 47, if you want to look there with me, we have this exchange between Jesus and Nathaniel. Nathaniel if you're reading through Matthew, Mark, or Luke, Nathaniel is also called Bartholomew. So if you're like, where's Nathaniel here? He's Bartholomew. He's also named Bartholomew. Jesus compliments Nathaniel by saying that he's a true Israelite in whom there is no deceit. Um, now again, if you're, if you're hearing the Bible, the echoes of the Bible, the Bible is amazing. And if you're hearing the echoes of the Bible, who is the, the true Israelite, the, the Israelite par excellence, the one who I think actually gets named Israel in the Old Testament? Well, it's Jacob. And yet Jacob is definitely not a man without deceit. J- Jacob is like the number one man of deceit. He's so conniving. He's, he's uh, you know, so we might think of that man when Jesus says this, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Genesis 28. In Genesis 28, we read the story of Jacob fleeing from his brother Esau. Uh, He's running through the wilderness. He's fleeing for his life. He's cheated his brother Esau out of his birthright. He's cheated him, connived him out of the blessing of the firstborn. Esau wants to kill him. Jacob's on the run. Jacob, in Genesis 28, is probably at the lowest moment uh, of, of his life. He's lost his family. He's lost his home. He's lost his inheritance. He's lost... He is, he's lost. The man is just lost. It gets so bad that he lays his head down to, to go to sleep. And what does he have underneath his head for his pillow? It's a rock. To just show you how bad, how pathetic his life is, his pillow that night is a stone. Um, and he falls asleep and he has a dream. In the first part of the dream, he sees a giant staircase. Now, Usually it's referred to as Jacob's ladder, and I used it as ladder because ladder rhymes with lamb, and I wanted to be very clear today, and you know, alliteration is, is helpful in preaching. I'm, as you know, I'm not a big alliterator in preaching, but um, 
ladder. But no, 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 it's not really a ladder. It's not that thing in the back corner there. It's a giant staircase. It is a stairway to heaven. It's Led Zeppelin. <laughs> it really, it, it's a stairway to heaven that he sees. And upon this stairway, there are these fiery, majestic, glorious angels who are walking down out of heaven to the spot there and walking back up. Um, it's a stairway to heaven. In, in their world, you know, a stairway to heaven would have immediately conjured up, I think, one image. And, and the image is this. And it's funny, Shilton, that you said that about um, mountains, how we would go up on top of mountains and they would worship there. But even before the top of a mountain, um, you would go up on top of a ziggurat, an ancient Middle Eastern temple. You know how, how a ziggurat was formed? You've probably seen them before, but it's like a tiered wedding cake. You got the lower level right here, and then you have the next rectangle that's a little bit in right there, right? And the next one like this, and the next... I mean, something like an, an Inca temple, um, but... When you, you write tiered wedding cake, ching, ching, ching. when you look at the side profile of that, what do you see? It's a stairway. It's a stairway to heaven. And the idea is that the priest of whatever religion, he would walk up to the top of the stairway and there he would meet with the gods. There he might offer a sacrifice. There he might offer a human sacrifice on the top. And that was the stairway to heaven in their world. Um, the stairway to heaven in our world, well, there are, there are many of them. Um, with Hinduism, there's a three-step stairway. Karma, samsara, nirvana. It's just three steps. But you keep doing it over and over and over and over and over. And you come into the world as a fruit fly. And if you do that really well, then... <laughs> Maybe you're a, a sea otter, the next reincarnation, and, um, and you just keep moving up. But same three steps. In, in Buddhism, there's an eight-step stairway, the, the eightfold path, the eight steps um, towards spiritual enlightenment. And then in secularism, and, and I mean, the stairway is go to a prestigious college, get a good degree, you know, get hired by a top company, meet the love of your life, Work your way to the top of the company. Have a couple of kids. Retire early. You know, go get a beach house in, in the Bahamas. Um, that's it. But, there, but here is the, the real stairway to heaven. Here is Jacob at the lowest point of his life. And God comes to him. Like in all the other stairways, you are trying to go up to God to make it there. But in this one, God comes to him. And I came across this awesome quote that you just have to listen to. Pay attention to this. It says, People who have known God the longest will always tell you it's in the lonely places, the humbling experiences, uh, and the experiences of desolation and loneliness that God drives down to you. <laughs> you know, those are the times... That the gate of heaven opens. That's where the angels ascend and descend. It's really the humbling experiences that bring more of God into your life. It always has been. You know, kind of contra Nathaniel, what he says. Can anything good come from Nazareth? Well, God's glory 
tends to come down in mangers and not in luxury hotels, onto crosses and not thrones, and into the lives of desolate people who have nothing but a stone for a pillow at night, into the lives of disgraced people, and into the lives of people whose lives have truly fallen apart. That's where heaven tends to open. Now, when did Elijah, the great prophet Elijah, get to hear the still, small voice of God? It was when he was so depressed that he wanted to die. He was so exhausted. Suicide sounded good. Uh, When did Jacob see the stairway to heaven? It was when he was so exhausted and depressed and he wanted to die. Um, When did Moses see the burning bush? It was when he was so depressed and on the run and what? His life had crumbled to pieces. And that's where God came to him. Um, Well, the punchline then is in verse 51. If you want to look there with me. Jesus then added, I tell you the truth. You shall see heaven open and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. What does he mean by that? He simply means that Nathaniel, like Jacob, is going to see heaven open. And when will that take place? When in the Gospel of John will we see the bridge between heaven and earth finally constructed? And anybody want to guess? I kind of told you last night, but I was talking, or last week, but I was talking so fast, you probably didn't pick it up. Yes. Yes. When the Son of Man is exalted, he's lifted up on the cross, there heaven and earth meet. And that's what Nathaniel's going to see. Again, isn't the Bible just awesome? If, if you didn't have this book, if you didn't have the first half of this book, uh, you would not understand these references that he's making. You, you really wouldn't. Um, you would not realize, and this is going to come up time and again in John's gospel, he's going to draw from the Old Testament to show that Jesus is fulfilling Israel's story. That, that God would send his blessings of salvation through the family of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and that Jesus would be the fulfillment of that. John's going to be constantly drawing from that. And if you didn't, or if you were like, I mean, so many Christians that don't read the Old Testament today, you wouldn't know. You wouldn't treasure. You wouldn't see. This is the time of year, we're almost at the new year, when everybody uh, starts out maybe a new Bible reading plan for, <laughs> for 2020. Let me just encourage you, like, be in the Word, treasuring the, what, you, what, what you have here is of such priceless value. Because it it magnificently shows you Jesus Christ. He's on every page. Let me conclude by telling you a crazy story that I heard this week about Christians smuggling Bibles into China. Now, I know that maybe that seems like a a strange way to to finish a story or the lamb and the ladder sermon, but this is so crazy, I I, I had to tell it to you. Um, Because this shows you how precious that book is in your lap. It's a story, 
I wasn't, I'm not able to verify the authenticity, but it was told by the vice president of Ravi Zacharias International Ministries, which is a fairly reputable organization. And it's the lady who runs their Oxford Study Center in Oxford, England. She told this story about uh, a Christian guy by the name of Chris from the UK. He was, a, he was a Brit. And he and his team were attempting to smuggle Bibles into China. Lots of Chinese Christians. You know, the church in China is growing like crazy. Not a lot of Bibles in China. There's a, there's a significant need. So Chris and his team were carrying a large number of Bibles. And they were supposed to go to this designated meeting point where they would meet a Chinese contact. The Chinese contact, very cloak and dagger, uh, he would utter a password. That, or that he, yeah, he would utter a password to them. And then they would know, this is the guy we need to drop the Bibles off with. Well, they go to the, the, the point they're looking around for the contact, and there isn't anybody. No one. They stay there for a while. A, a bunch of white guys, and, and they're looking all around, and they're drawing attention to themselves. They realize people are watching us. We better go. So they start to walk out of the city to the edge of town as though they're leaving the town. They stop nearby at a nearby park to get a drink of water and to pray and they are wondering, why, why, Lord, did you bring us all the way from the United Kingdom to China with Bibles uh, through all of these difficulties and all these sacrifices? And then we can't even find our contact person. Like, why, why has this mission seemingly failed? Well, it had it. They noticed three scruffy-looking, disheveled Chinese men who are like, in the tree behind them in the park. And for some reason, Chris just senses that he's supposed to go and take some water to these guys. So he walks over with some water. I mean, they must have been really rough-looking characters. Here you are, and what do you think happens to him? The guy he hands it to says the password. <laughs> in, in like broken English, but he says, he says the password. So he calls the rest of the team over, and... In, in the little bit of Chinese that they, were, that they knew, they were able to parse together this story. It turns out that these three guys were poor farmers from northern China, like up near Mongolia. Two years earlier, when they were in a, in a service of worship, God spoke a word to them. Don't know what that means, but he spoke a word to them and said, that you're to go to this city, to this park, on this day, and you're to meet some white guys who are going to bring you Bibles. <laughs> and um, I mean, they're poor men, and so they don't have the, the money for such a, a long journey. I think it's going to take them three months by foot. They have to save up their money. They, um, they have to get, you know, shoes and clothes. So they head off. And I mean, they walk for three months. They, they cross, you know, snow-capped mountains. They, they go through the middle of deserts. They, all they know is that they're supposed to come to this place, and um, that's where God had shown them to go. How do they know the password? They don't even know English. How, how do they know? How could they survive the heat and the snow without protective clothing? How did this happen? I don't know. Why did this happen? Why did this happen? I know. And it's because of this. <laughs> because this, this is, this is life. 
This is where Christ is found. And I can think of nothing better for you to do in 2020 than than to study this and also to use this to invite other people like Nathaniel to come and see. Like, just come and see. Come to a Bible study with me. Uh, come, come to the Christmas Eve service. Come to our church. Come and see. Come and, come and see what, what is there. Last part of the story, and this is probably the most, maybe the most touching part. The men brought cloth bags with them to, uh, it, to put the Bibles in you know, that they were going to get to carry back with them to the, the town. Well, in every one of the cloth bags, they also carried a watermelon. And the watermelon was meant as a tribute to give to whomever the white guys were. They were bringing the Bibles to them. Um, they carried a watermelon for three months. Even when they were hungry and didn't have any food, they didn't eat the watermelon. Because that watermelon, that watermelon was going to be their thank offering for the word of God. Come and see. Come and study. Come and see Christ. Behold the lamb. Behold the ladder. Behold the author. Amen.